This morning will be from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. We'll be reading part of that chapter in a moment. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, we'll be looking at verse 8 through 10 this morning. Now we were talking before the service about a elderly woman handing out pro-life pamphlets who got shot in the back. And as we think about these things, uh, the world is becoming a more wicked place. The world is becoming more hostile to God and more hostile to everything that's good. And God's children cry out because of the injustice in this present world, in this present life. We see so much of it around the world, and we're beginning to see it even in our own land. Some get very upset about this. They seek the power. They seek to control it. They seek to avoid it through power. Um, Some just give up. They hide their lamp under the bed, bury their talent in the ground, and just kind of wait it out. Some get angry and bitter. They curse God. They curse men. They fight. The believer, though, in all of Scripture is called to one thing, to live in hope, the hope in God, the hope and trust in God, to have faith in God, and to patiently wait for him to deliver us and to make things right. As we've been going through First and Second Thessalonians, that has been a solid theme in these two books. We've considered on a num- number of occasions that Paul says, if in Christ we have hope only in this life, we are all people to be most pitied, 1 Corinthians 15, 19. And he's speaking of really the resurrection and the life to come. That is where our hope is. So here again, the Thessalonians, they're suffering terrible persecutions. They're suffering injustice in the, because of the name of Christ. And Paul calls them not to hope in the here and now, not to hope in this life, but to hope in that day when the Lord returns, that day when he is revealed in his glory, that day when he will judge the world and when he will set everything right. We are to hope and trust that the Lord will repay those who afflict us, verse 6. Grant us relief from our troubles, verse 7. And in the day of the Lord, the day that has been appointed for the task, the day he returns, that great and terrible day of the Lord. So as we'll look today in verses 8 through 10, he gives us some of the details, especially the details of what happens to those who have persecuted his children. Let us open the word there to Second Thessalonians. I'll start reading at verse 3 and read through the end of the chapter of chapter 1. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the church of God, for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angel in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints, to be marveled at among those who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we also pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, in you and him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come together to continue our study through this book and we come to your wrath against the wicked and the punishment you will give them. Pray, Lord, that we would be careful in our hearts not to rejoice in 
their affliction, but to be encouraged to remember what we ourselves deserve, what we have been saved from, what we have to rejoice in, not just their justice, but the forgiveness of sins in our Lord Jesus Christ. So we pray, Lord, as we go through this, you would encourage our hearts with those thoughts. In Jesus' name, amen. So this really is talking about the fate of the godless world, the fate of the godless person. And it gives us some details. Now, you may notice when you read this, it's a little confusing what to do with the first prepositional phrase in verse 8, in flaming fire. What is that related to? And there's been different interpretations offered of this because the break between verse 7 and verse 8 is in kind of a confusing place. It doesn't necessarily make sense to break it there. It's right in the middle of a thought, the middle really of a, of a sentence. Uh, I want you to remember that the chapters and verses were added much later than the Bible was written. And they weren't added under inspiration. They were added by men for convenience, for expediency. Makes it easier to find a specific verse. Uh, I do that all the time in my sermon where I'll read a verse and then I'll say the reference so that you can go look at it and you can see what is the context, what is the meaning. Is pastor really right? And I encourage you to do that, just like the Bereans did. The Old Testament scrolls, though, didn't have these, but they did have another feature, we believe, and that is that every copy was the same. That when they copied it out, a checker would come by and check the words by counting up what we would call a checksum today. And he knew the checksum for every line and every column on the scroll. And so they'd all be identical, and that way they could check to see if there were errors. And that helped them to keep faithful copies down through the, the, the ages that they had the scriptures. Uh, you could, in theory, then open the scroll of Isaiah, go to the 23rd column, the 14th line, and find the text you're looking for. Whereas today we would say you go to Isaiah 7:14. Not necessarily the same. I'm using an, as an illustration. So the verse number is stuck here in a place that's very confusing. Well, how did it get there? Believe it or not, the numbering system we have in our current Bibles, with a few adjustments, was introduced by a French pub printer when he was publishing the New Testament. He put in the verse divisions for us. The first English Bible to have verse divisions in both the Old and the New Testament was the Geneva Bible of 1560. Uh, 1551 is when that Greek New Testament was printed. So you can see it's not that old. We shouldn't think of it as inspired. Uh, most languages use the same divisions we do, but a few translations don't. But even in the translations we have, for instance, the NASB and the ESV, they change things sometimes. And the King James may have one, and we may have a different one, and it can be a little confusing. So I wanted to touch on that briefly, even though it's not a major point. They're not inspired, and sometimes we need to break, change the break. Uh, there's at least one place, maybe two, where we want to change the chapter break in the New Testament. Put a couple of words in the next chapter. So given the problem comes up really with the Greek and the grammar, Believe it or not, in the original Greek texts we have, they would go on sometimes for pages in a single run-on sentence. Now, we might think, oh, you know, if you're an English teacher, you'll freak out. But that was the way they wrote in that day. Grammar changes over time and changes between languages. I remember when I was learning Kamai, getting the idea that there are no spaces between words, and where you see a space, that's a period, a separate sentence. You know, these things vary from language to language. When you want to make that English, you have to make proper English out of it. And so you make adjustments, you put in commas, you put in periods, you make a run-on sentence that goes on for three pages into hundreds of sentences and multiple paragraphs even. And that's all a matter of interpretations. 
Here the words in flaming fire in verse 8, they're part of the thought started in verse 7. Some translations move the verse break. In, in the Greek, it's broken where it is in the ESV, before that phrase. Some translations move that before there because they consider it part of the previous thought, and they put a comma after it. Uh, the ESV puts a comma after it, but a verse break before it, so it's a little confusing what they mean. So the, the issue becomes, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, comma, making it part of the previous text, or is it a comma before in flaming fire and in flaming fire taking vengeance upon the enemies? That's what the King James has. The NIV goes a little further and interprets it and says, Jesus is revealed in blazing fire with his angels. So they change the phrase order even and move it from one verse to the next. So which one is it? Well, if we look at the text carefully in the Greek, this is the third of three prepositional phrases describing the Lord's revelation. From heaven, with angels, in flaming fire. And so many modern translators will put it with the previous verse because it's three prepositional phrases. They should probably all go together describing the same event, the return of the Lord. And we do see this idea of the Lord returning in fire. You remember Moses saw him in the flaming bush. But Isaiah 66, verses 15 and 16, the Lord will come in fire and with his chariots like a whirlwind to render his anger in fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment and by his sword with all flesh. And those slain by the Lord shall be many. Talking about the final judgment, his return in fire. And so it probably goes with that. Uh, others, and the King James traditional interpretation, is to associate it with the judgment, the fire of the judgment. After he is judged, Jesus says in... Uh, Matthew 25, 41, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you are cursed into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angel. And in 2 Peter 3, 8 through 13, that section I won't read, but he speaks of the world being burned up with fire and destroyed. And they think that this should be interpreted then as having to do with the judgment. Now, which one is correct is... Not important because they would both be true. Only one of them can be correct. And it's probably the one where the phrase goes with the previous phrases and it's describing Jesus' return. So it should be in verse 7. Anyway, what I want you to note about that section is that it's talking about the return of the Lord, his revelation. And if we jump down to verse 10, verse 10 is also talking about when that day comes, when Jesus returns. And in between those, sandwiched in between that, is this little text of verse 8 and 9, which is primarily what we're concerned with today. We saw that the day of the, his return will have two major points in verse 6 and 7. The encouragement of the believers to stand fast in hope, because we'll be relieved, and the judgment that is to come based because of our suffering at the hands of the godless. And that will be avenged. And we will have verse 6, and then in verse 7, the relief we will have. And so now he's going to focus on explaining that judgment. Uh, this isn't a light thing in the Word of God. This shows up throughout the Old and the New Testament. God's wrath against sin. Man was walking with God in the garden. He sinned. He got thrown out of the garden, could no longer walk face to face with God and talk with him. And an angel and a flaming sword were put there to keep him from returning. You know, sin is a serious deal, and God's wrath against sin and judgment on sin is very serious. God's justice requires vengeance, and his vengeance is just. 
You remember the story of the parable of the persistent widow in Luke 18? She kept going over and over to the judge saying, give me justice against my adversary. And the judge didn't care, but he was getting worn out. So finally he said, fine, I'll give it to you. And the Lord says in verse 6, hear what the unrighteous judge says. Will not God give justice to his elect to cry to him day and night? Will he delay over long about them? The word justice there is the same word as as vengeance in our text today, the same Greek word. And that gives us some important insight into the meaning. God says he will give his elect justice. God says he will bring vengeance upon the wicked. Same word. It's similar to the word the widow uses. They carry the idea of both justice and vengeance. They're not separate. People today think vengeance is evil. We have a God of love. But in Scripture, the word can be translated both ways. And if you were to look up all the uses of that word in the New Testament, many of them are talking about justice. And some of them are talking clearly about vengeance. But all of them carry the illusion to both. God is both just and avenging, avenging wrong, avenging sin. And so we can't separate those two ideas from each other. And that great and terrible day of the Lord, the Lord will repay sinners for their sins in full. Remember, vengeance is mine and recompense. For the time of their foot shall slip. The day of their calamity is at hand. Their doom comes swiftly. For the Lord, Yahweh, will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone and there is none remaining, bond or free. Deuteronomy 32, 35-36. Now you'll note that Jesus quotes part of that passage. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Uh, Jesus is the one who is doing the vengeance, but note that it uses the word Yahweh, the Lord, in the Old Testament. Jesus being the eternal son, the second person of the Holy Trinity, is referred to as doing the work of Yahweh, Yahweh the God, covenant God of Israel. He is one and the same. Now this vengeance that he's talking about is poured out on, we have two different people groups here, on those who do not know God. Some take these two phrases as two distinct groups. Those who do not know God as the Gentiles, and those who do not obey the gospel as the Jews. But that's quite strained. While the Gentiles did not know God, neither really did the unbelieving Jews. Remember, Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. He's talking to the Jewish leaders who were mocking, saying, how can he be the Christ? We know his father and his mother and his brothers and sisters. But Jesus says, you do not know him who sent me. You do not know God the Father. They did not know God, even though they claimed him as their God. Apart from faith in Christ, nobody knows God. Jesus also said, O righteous Father, in his prayer in John 17, verse 25, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know you, these know that you have sent me, speaking of his disciples. And they said to him, Where is your father? And he says, You know neither me, if you you know the me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also, John 8. Verse 19, the other one was John 17, 25. They did not know God as Lord. They did not know him as God, as Savior. Remember what Paul says in Romans chapter 1. I want to read a little bit of it. Verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. 
For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God nor give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fool and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Romans 1, 18 through 23. All men, Jew and Gentile alike, are without excuse because they should know God, but they suppress that knowledge in their own sinfulness. They know about God through the natural world. That truth is suppressed, and therefore they are able to all men to be condemned for not knowing God. That applies equally to in, in everyone. Now, this invalidates the claim some liberals have who say that God would be unjust to punish those who haven't heard the gospel because, you know, the gospel has to go evenly to everyone or it's not valid for anyone. And that's just foolishness. God has the right to save somebody if he wants to, but he has the right to judge all of us based on our sin, based on our refusal to acknowledge him as true God and worship him in the way he is prescribed. They are condemned, all men are condemned, for not knowing the God who made them, the God who created all things out of nothing in the space of six normal, literal days. And so they remain in their sin. When Jesus said in John 3:16 and following, I'll read just verse 18, whoever believes in him, meaning the Son of God, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. He's not saying that they can only be condemned if they don't, if they willfully disbelieve. He's pointing out that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All deserve the wages of sin, which is death. And that the only way to overcome this is by believing in the Messiah, the, the, the Christ, in his atoning sacrifice, his substitutionary atonement. Without the blood of Christ and the work he has done, we deserve only hell. And Jesus is simply pointing out that they're already condemned for their sin. They have sinned. They have rejected God. They do not know God, even though he can be known in all creation. And therefore, they remain in that sin and are already condemned. Paul goes on with a second group which I'm going to argue is a subset of the first group. It's not a distinct group because the Jews certainly fall into the, they do not know God. Jesus has said they don't know God. They don't know him as God. And the second group is on those who do not obey the gospel. Uh, As I said, I don't believe this to be the Jews, but I think it's a parallel and that it's referring to a subset of those who do not know God. An aggravation of the sin of not going God is rejecting the gospel, having heard it. Jesus said, my teaching is not my own, but the teaching of him who sent me. The good news that Jesus brought from God was the message he was giving. And when they reject that message, they are rejecting God and rejecting his mercy and his grace to them. That's why he says, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. That's the call of the gospel, to repent of your sins and turn to God. But I tell you, it would be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven, or will you be brought down to Hades? For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable in the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Those who have heard the gospel, those who have had it offered to them, are this second group, and they have rejected the gospel. They have despised the work of the Lord, the sacrifice he made for his people. And they face then a much more serious judgment. They not only had the gospel, but they had the miracles that proved that the gospel was being spoken of from God the Father. My teaching is not my own, but him who sent me. 
those who heard the gospel and rejected it face a more terrible punishment. And I think that's why Paul in this passage calls them out as a second set. While Christ paying for our sins wasn't merited by us, the godless receive their just punishment that they have merited for themselves. And that's really the core of the gospel. It is not that we were found better and they were found worse, but that Christ has paid for the sins of his people, and we are now seen as righteous, even though we have sinned. Those not cleansed by the blood of the Lamb, by the blood of Christ, are still guilty whether they heard the gospel or not. They still have the guilt of their sins, the guilt even of original sin, but also of all the sins they have committed since then. And if God is just, they must then be punished for their sins. We spoke about that in more detail last week. But that also brings us then to verse 9. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. The punishment of eternal destruction. This is the true nature of hell. We must consider here what the eternal state of the godless is going to be. There are some today who call themselves Christians who have completely rejected hell. I remember one pastor who I thought was orthodox before that, announcing that he would not worship a God who would send people to hell. And my response to that was immediate, said, obviously you don't worship the God of the Bible who sends people to hell. As I've said many times, Jesus is really the great preacher of hell in the New Testament. But it doesn't start there. It starts really in the Old Testament. We read it this morning, but I want to read verse 24 to you again of Isaiah 66. They, and they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. Their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched. They shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Jesus quotes this word also. And I want to bring that to your memory because there are other groups out there to acknowledge hell, what they, like the Seventh-day Adventists and many more liberal Christians, will insist that they're not tormented or punished for all eternity, but they're simply annihilated. Now, this is the philosophy of nihilism. And life is a doomed journey of misery and loneliness, punctuated by moments of extreme suffering and ending in total annihilation. Taught that in college. Uh, it's not true. The last part is not right. We are not annihilated. Others use science and say, oh, but our, you know, our being is nothing more than electrical impulses in our brain. And once our brain dies, we're done. And they don't believe that there is a soul and they don't believe there is eternity for them. But we know if they were simply annihilated, wouldn't you quench the fire? Wouldn't it be no longer needed? Once they are thrown into the fire that annihilates them, no more, but it says it will not be annihilated. Jesus says in the end of Matthew 25, verse 41, he will say to those on his left, the wicked, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Matthew 25, 41. And he concludes that little section with, at verse 46, but they will go away to eternal punishment the righteous to eternal life. The contrast to the eternal life of us spending eternity with God in heaven, with him, worshiping him, enjoying all the privileges and goodness he gives us. The other side of that, he does not say is annihilation, but eternal punishment. We get a little clearer picture in the book of Revelation. In chapter 14, verses 9 and following, an angel and another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships a beast in his image and receives the mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. 
They have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Now note, they will be tormented. They will have no rest day or night. This is not talking about annihilation, but it's talking about eternal punishment. Eternal destruction. Destruction is not annihilation, but it is the destroying of their body and their soul with punishment throughout eternity. Again, in verse 19:20, when the beast is captured and the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image, those two will be thrown alone alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. They will be alive when they enter the fire. Flipping over to chapter 20, verse 10. And the devil who had deceived them is thrown into the lake of fire. Again, talking about this lake of fire. In the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were. It doesn't say where they were destroyed, but where they were, where they're living forever. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Revelation 20. And down in verse 15 of that chapter, and if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, who's in the book of life? Well, the elect. Who's not in the book of life? The non-elect. So all of the non-elect, all of those who were not saved by the blood of Christ, if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he, he was thrown into the lake of fire. They have the same fate. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That is the teaching of Scripture. Hell is a real place, a horrible place of torment and punishment for the wicked where they will pay for their sins. Now, people ask, well, why does it have to be forever? Can't it be for a certain amount of time? Well, it goes back to the nature of God. Remember, we know that they have sinned against their creator, their God, and God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. So he's infinite in holiness and infinite in justice. We know the price of a single sin can never be repaid. Remember Psalm 49, verse 7 through 9. No man can give a ransom for the life of another or give to God a price for his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on and never see the pit. There is no payment for our sin that will mark it paid in full that man can give. There is no way for a man to pay for his sin in its entirety. And God is just. He must be paid full for his sin. If he says, I'll accept half payment for your sin, and let you out in a thousand years or ten thousand years or a million years, whatever half would be, he wouldn't be just. It would be unjust. You might ask, then, how then those who belong to Christ be saved? I can't pay for my sin. I would need to spend an eternity of torment in the lake of fire, being tormented day and night forever and ever. How can the Christian be saved? Doesn't this prove that God winks at their sin? Oh, well, you paid me back with a little suffering in your life, so I'll, I'll cancel the rest of it. I'll ignore it. Is, it. is God's holiness and justice not infinite? The answer is simple and clear in Scripture. Jesus bore our sins on the cross. And God received justice through that because he poured out the full measure of his wrath for our sins upon Christ on the cross. And that way, it is paid in full. Now, if Jesus were not a man, he couldn't stand as our substitute. And if he were not God, infinite in his being, as we saw from our catechism, then he couldn't pay the infinite debt in full. How then do we know the debt is paid in full? Well, simple. Remember, the wages of sin is death. Jesus died for our sins. Did he stay dead? 
He was risen. He was risen indeed. How could he rise if the debt wasn't paid? When the debt was paid in full, sin no longer had to be paid. It was paid for, and death no longer had a hold over him, and he could be raised from the dead. And so God's wrath and curse upon our sins was paid in full on the cross. This is why Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Talking about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, 17. Uh, if he hadn't been raised, then that would show that the debt hadn't been paid in full. And if the debt hadn't been paid in full, our faith in him would be futile because we wouldn't be able to be raised because we would still have sin, which needed to pay, be paid for with an eternity of punishment in hell. The punishment here in our passage, though, is not just torment for all eternity. Notice he says that the godless are eternally separated from God as well. Now, I remember as an atheist thinking, why would I want to be with God? I don't like your God. I don't want to be with him. This would be a good thing to be separated from God. Well, the two answers to that are first, hell is real and it's eternal punishment. And the second is every good thing and every pleasure we have in this world, in this life, is from God. True good. Just as the light is from God, it, it also says they will be in darkness. And they will live in darkness, separated from God. Because even the light, but not just the light and the warmth, but the, the goodness of being in his presence. And if you've ever been in love with somebody and you have that great joy when you're in their presence, well, that's kind of the, the feeling the, the believer will have when they are with God. That's why we are compared, Christ the bridegroom and we the bride. We will have that adoration, that affection, that joy, that pleasure in Christ for all eternity and being with God. And the wicked will not have, have that. Jesus says, God makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends the rain on the just and the unjust. They will have none of the good things that God gives even to the wicked in this life. They will be away from his glory, away from his might. They will have zero comfort in anything. People tell themselves, oh, it is better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. There's no reigning in hell. There's just sitting in endless torment for all eternity. There's no hope. God is far from you now. He will not come again to you. He has already come. There is no pleasure of any kind for them. Why is this so important for us to realize and to understand? Well, I was just mentioning that as an atheist, I would have been happy to be separated from God. I would be happy to be annihilated. But that isn't the option. The option isn't eternity with a God you don't like or annihilation. The option is an eternity of torment in hell or an eternity with the God you love. And how do we love God? Well, because he first loved us. He loved us and transformed us. He took out that heart of stone and gave us a heart of flesh. He gave us that new life. He regenerated us. And now we love him and we want to be with him and we can see how important it is to be in his presence forever. The wicked will never again have any comfort of God and of God's presence. Now, the question is always asked, is God really just to do this to sinners? And the answer is, first, the Bible says that he is perfect in his justice and that this is just. It is not bitter anger and hatred and wanting to hurt people more than they hurt you. It is doing what is right to punish sin. And if he didn't do it, he would not be just. And if he was not just, he could not be holy. And if he is not holy and just, he is not God. Uh, people want to worship a man, not God. Going back to Romans 1. You know, they make God in their own image. They want to worship somebody who's like them, who understands their sin, who will accept their sin, who is a sinner like them. They don't want the perfect, holy God. 
And that's why it's important to remind them of his holiness and his justice and his goodness and his truth. It is also important for us to think about that because what were we saved from? Right? The one who is forgiven little, much loves little. Forgiven much loves much. The more we grasp God's wrath and curse upon sin, the more we understand hell and that we deserve to be there where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Think about it. If you've ever burned yourself, it hurts, and it hurts for a long time. Imagine your whole body is like that, and it doesn't go away ever. And the worms are gnawing at your flesh, and you feel them chomping away, and it hurts. And then think about, that's what I deserve, but God, Christ, took that punishment for me, and I am free from it. Doesn't that give us great joy and great hope? And in eternity, I will live with him. This world, this life, the suffering, the sickness, the disease, the persecution, minor compared to the eternal weight of glory that awaits us. But when does this happen? How long must we wait for this justice? How long must we wait for this relief? Verse 10, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and marveled at among all who believe, Because our testimony to you was believed. That day is coming. And that is the day in which we hope. As I started in the beginning, you know, if our hope is in this life, we are pitiful. And this is why Jesus tells us, (coughs) Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys nor where thieves break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will be your heart also. Matthew six nineteen through 21. We live for that day. We live for eternity. We put our treasure there. You know, you know if people have saved their whole life for retirement so that they can have a good retirement. Well, sometimes you die before you get that. But we are saving up for eternity by putting our treasure in heaven, by being heavenly minded, thinking of the things above, How do we do that? Well, by by being obedient to God's revealed word, by seeking to draw near to him, by seeking his glory in our lives and all that we do. And we will be marveling at him. He comes so that we can marvel at him. We will see him as he is. We will see his justice as it is. And we will understand better the price Christ paid for us. We will understand better than ever what Christ has done for us that we may marvel at his gloriousness and his power. And that is because Paul's testimony was believed by them and by us. Paul had given thanks to them in his first letter. Remember in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, We thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Because they had received his teaching, they had received the gospel. And the gospel is not just that little repent and believe, but the gospel, the good news about Christ is all of what Scripture says, both about Christ and about sin and about judgment and about wrath. It all works together as part of that glorious good news that we are saved by him, by his work, from all that we were supposed to do and all that we deserve to suffer. And by believing the preaching, the word of God, the one true gospel, they were being saved. What a glorious thing to marvel at. They believed the testimony. Now, some people do struggle, and I understand it, with the idea of hell and with the idea of eternal torment. And they see themselves in that position or their loved ones who never believed, and they stress about it. There are a couple of things I can say to that. First is that if we really know God, we know that he does what is right. We know that he does what is just. And we can be confident that it is not wrong what he is doing. But it is right. And it is not on us that we are saved from that. But it is, as Jesus said, all the Father gives to me will come to me. We have come to him because God has ordained it. And we need to remember that and not be struggling with whether hell is right, but understand 
that we deserve hell and we're saved from that. And in that we see the mercy of God in our life. And in the punishment of the wicked, we see what we deserve and what we are saved from. This is all really part of Paul's call to patient endurance. Right now you're suffering. Right now you're persecuted. Right now you may be facing death. But hope in God. Trust that he will bring you through to eternity as he has promised. Trust that the good work he has started in you will be brought through to the day of completion. Hope in that and live a life for that purpose, for that day when he returns. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you have saved us from such a great and horrible fate, a fate we deserve, a fate of eternal torment in hell where the fire is never quenched, where the worm never dies, where there is no rest day or night. We know we deserve that, Lord, and we know that your Son paid that price for us. Help us, Lord, to admire, to marvel, to glorify you and all of that knowledge. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.